This is Speaking Freely from the ACLU of Pennsylvania, the podcast that tells the story of civil liberties. I'm your host, Andy Hoover, Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. In this episode, we are talking about free speech. The right to free speech embedded in the First Amendment is foundational to democracy. It's the right that guarantees our ability to advocate on all of the other issues we care about. And we constantly have to protect it. Today, I'm talking with Molly Tack Hooper, staff attorney for the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Molly is co-counsel on two current free speech cases, one against SEPTA, the public transit agency in Southeast PA, and the other against a sitting congressman. Molly and I will discuss both cases. Also in this episode, we have another Meet the Staff segment. Communications associate Ben Bowen sat down with Nisa Taylor, who is the Criminal Justice Policy Council here at the ACLU of PA. Nisa talks about her work and the need for reform of the criminal justice system. Molly is up first. This interview was recorded on April 20th. Molly, you're a co-counsel right now on two really interesting free speech cases. One involves an old form of media, putting advertisements on buses and trains, and the other involves a newer form of media, not exactly new anymore, but social media and specifically Facebook. So let's start with the bus and train advertising. We're suing SEPTA, which runs the public transportation system in the Philadelphia metropolitan area. Who is our client and what do they want to do? We represent the Center for Investigative Reporting. CIR is the nation's first nonprofit investigative news organization, and it's won a ton of awards for its investigative journalism. And CIR wanted to advertise a report it recently published about the conventional home mortgage market. CIR spent a year analyzing 31 million public records looking at the race of people applying for mortgages, and CIR found dramatic racial disparities. They found that in 61 cities in America, including Philadelphia, people of color are far more likely than white people to be turned down for a mortgage when they're buying a home. CIR's report also included some history about redlining, which is a shameful part of American history where the federal government drew up maps to strangle investment in areas where immigrants and people of color lived. You can listen to CIR's Reveal podcast explaining this history and explaining what the data shows about racial disparities today in the conventional home mortgage market. It's called The Red Line, Racial Disparities in Lending. CIR wanted to advertise this reporting to people on SEPTA's vehicles, which go through many of the neighborhoods in Philly that are disproportionately affected by these discriminatory lending practices. But SEPTA denied CIR's request to advertise in any of SEPTA's ad spaces. So SEPTA has a policy around this, and we're suing because of that policy. They prohibit certain types of ads. Um, It's a 22-point policy, and our lawsuit is focused on two of those points. What are they, and why are they so problematic? SEPTA said that CIR violated two provisions of the ad policy. The first is a provision that bans, quote-unquote, political ads. SEPTA defined the term political very broadly. It includes not just ads for candidates for elected office or political parties, but also ads involving any issue that is quote-unquote political in nature. 
Uh, and SEPTA defines this as anything that implicates government action or government inaction or government policy. Uh, and if you find yourself thinking, what does that mean? You're not alone. One of the main reasons this provision is so pro problematic is that it's incredibly vague. What does it mean for something to implicate government policy? Does that mean anything the government might try to regulate in some way? Any government? I mean, it's really hard to think of a subject that wouldn't be political in nature, according to that vague, broad definition. Another reason that provision is so problematic is that generally political speech is given the most constitutional protection of any kind of speech. Being able to discuss what the government does and what it ought to do is essential to democracy. So First Amendment case law has always been especially protective of this kind of speech. So it's ironic to see the government singling political speech out for censorship here. SEPTA also cited a provision of their ad policy that bans ads that express an opinion, position, or viewpoint on quote-unquote matters of public debate about economic, political, religious, historical, or social issues. And this, of course, has the same problem as the political provision of being incredibly broad and vague. What counts as a social issue? I don't know. It's not defined anywhere. Who decides whether an issue is a matter of public debate? SEPTA does. Mm. And by focusing on issues that are quote-unquote debatable, it seems clear that what SEPTA is doing is trying to cut off anything that might be controversial. Mm -hmm. The problem is that when you ban topics that are controversial, usually that has viewpoint discriminatory effects, meaning it tends to censor one side of an issue more than the other side. So, for example, the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit explained in another case that if you ban discussion of religion as a topic, that's going to have the effect of censoring speakers with a religious viewpoint, even though speakers with a secular viewpoint on the same topic get to speak about it. And that seems to be what SEPT is doing here. Okay, so let me see if I can summarize then what we're saying. SEPTA is a government agency, and as such, they do not have the power to censor. Therefore, their ad space should be a relatively open forum, correct? It's a little more nuanced than that. The rules turn on why SEPTA created the forum and how it has traditionally been used. So courts will um, apply a few different tests depending on how those facts shake out. But when you discriminate based on viewpoint, that's basically always unconstitutional. And when you give a government official the power to censor speech without giving them standards to constrain their discretion, that's always problematic because it means that they can make really subjective decisions, which also usually have the effect of um, targeting one side of a debate or the other. So we think that pretty much any way a court analyzes this, uh, SEPTA's policy is unconstitutional. Okay. It's funny, our cases often feel like the same things happening over and over again with different government agencies. <laughs> and this one seems like that as well. We've had other cases like this. We had a case uh, against the Philadelphia Airport Authority on behalf of the NAACP. We had one in Lackawanna County against the public transit uh, agency there on behalf of an atheist group. Um, and it sounds like SEPTA is in the same situation. Uh, is this case like those? Are there differences? Yeah, I would say the SEPTA's policy is part of a larger trend of transit ad policies that are designed to try to exclude anything that could be controversial or offensive. The problem is that once the government 
opens a forum for speech by inviting the general public to advertise on government-owned property. The First Amendment limits what the government can do to keep out controversial or offensive speech. Um, if the government wants to censor certain content under the First Amendment case law, it needs a very good reason to do that. And just preventing people from the possibility that they might be offended is not a legitimate reason for government censorship, courts have explained. So we've just filed this case. Um, can you explain the process to our listeners? What are we asking for and what happens next? We are asking the court to declare those two provisions of SEPTA's ad policy to be unconstitutional and to order SEPTA to accept CIR's proposed ad. And without getting into the weeds, we plan to ask the court to hear the case on an expedited basis. Uh, we'd like to get this resolved and get the center's ad up within a few months rather than the litigation dragging on for years. All right, so let's talk about the other case you're involved in. Uh, we've had to draw a line for a certain member of Pennsylvania's congressional delegation. Uh, who are the players involved and what happened? This case centers around Congressman Ryan Costello, who represents Pennsylvania's 6th district. We represent a large group of his constituents, mostly women, who have been very active in the last year in making their views known to the congressman uh, and often criticizing his positions. And we received dozens of complaints from people whom Costello had blocked on social media after they criticized him. And we also received complaints from a few people who seemed to have been blacklisted from attending his public town hall meetings after they criticized him. So let's start with the blocking on Facebook. What is our legal argument for why elected officials cannot block people on their official social media pages? Right. So if I create a personal Facebook page, I can open it up to whoever I want, block whoever I want for any reason. But when a government official creates a Facebook page and uses it to communicate information about his official duties and opens it up to public comments, that official is constrained by the First Amendment. That Facebook page becomes essentially a government-created forum for speech, just like the ad space in the government-owned transit system. And courts analyze these government-created forums for speech a few different ways, depending on why they were created and how they historically were used, but courts almost never uphold censorship of speech that's based on the speaker's viewpoint. And that's exactly what we had here. Representative Costello was allowing people to post supportive comments on his Facebook page and praise, but deleting or blocking people who had criticized or questioned him. So that segues to the other piece here, which is that Congressman Costello has blocked uh, admission to his town halls of some of his constituents who just happen to be people who have criticized him. <laughs> um, what's our legal argument against that behavior? It's a similar legal argument, um, but it's worth adding that the First Amendment protects not only your right to speak freely, but it also prevents the government from retaliating against you based on your speech. So if you invite your constituents to come to a town hall where they can engage in dialogue with you, you can't exclude people from the town hall just because they've criticized you in the past and you don't really want to face them again. The government can set what are called reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions 
on access to the town hall. Government officials can say that, say the first 300 people to show up get to come in. They can put time limits on each speaker's comments. They can limit the number of questions they're going to answer in total. They don't have to take every single question. And they can prohibit people from yelling at you through a bullhorn. But they can't exclude people from the event based on their viewpoints. That's unconstitutional. So you're involved in these two cases. You actually had a really interesting and uh, fantastic victory uh, last year on a First Amendment issue, the cop watch situation with police officers recorded or uh, police officers being recorded. Um, so I want to ask you a broad question. Being involved in these cases and other First Amendment cases you've been involved in, what do you consider the current hot topics around free speech and free expression? That's a great and difficult question. Um, I'd say that we we come back to the same core First Amendment principles over and over again, uh, but the government's always finding new and creative ways to silence dissent and punish government's critics. Uh, it's hard to say exactly what the next threats are going to look like, and I frankly don't really want to give the government any ideas, <laughs> uh, but we just try to remain vigilant and respond quickly to threats to free speech, because free speech is what we call a foundational right. You need free speech for a functioning democracy. You need it for all your other rights to survive. So we take government censorship very seriously, and we're representing the Center for Investigative Reporting and Costello's constituents, not only because their free speech rights are in jeopardy, but because all of ours are. Well, Molly, thanks for taking the time to discuss these cases. Good luck with them. And I'm sure we'll have you back on the podcast sometime soon. Thank you. Thank you to Molly Tack Hooper for taking the time to talk about our free speech work. You can learn more about these cases on our website, at aclupa.org slash CIRVSEPTA and aclupa.org slash Costello. These links will also be in the show notes. Let's meet the staff. Ben Bowens from our comm staff talked with Nisa Taylor, our Criminal Justice Policy Council. The ACLU is serious about reforming the criminal justice system, and NISA is one of the legal brains behind that work, including and especially our campaign for smart justice. In this discussion, NISA talks about the goals of the campaign and why mass incarceration is so pervasive in Pennsylvania. Thank you for sitting down with me and doing this interview. You are quite welcome. Thank you for doing the interview. Can you um, please state your name and your job title for us? Sure. I am Nisa Taylor, the Criminal Justice Policy Counsel for the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Awesome. What is your role here? What do you think your role is here and what, what, are, you, what are some things that you're working on right now? So we have been launching, we are in the process of launching the Smart Justice Campaign which has its goal to reduce incarceration by 50% and to reduce the racial disparities that are pervasive in the criminal justice system. So I am working as part of that campaign, but I'm also doing broader criminal justice policy work. 
Specifically, however, with the campaign, there has been a focus on four buckets of the criminal justice system. And those four are bail, um, prosecutorial reform, probation and parole, and sentencing. So most of the policy work that I'm doing, I try to focus within those four buckets that are outlined by our larger campaign. Right. Speaking of the four buckets, which area would you say your work has focused on most so far? Well, I would say primarily in bail and then probation and parole, although I am doing work in sentencing and prosecutorial reform. So I've been working within all of them to differing degrees. Um, I've been working with, as part of coalition, uh, coalitions in Philadelphia that are comprised of pretty dynamic leaders and really amazing, um, amazing activists and um, so all of my work within Philadelphia has been with the you know, 215 Jail Coalition and with the Coalition for a Just DA. And so that has been, there's been a lot of focus on ending cash bail in Philadelphia. And that work has been going on for years, and it has been driven by, again, by the work of these really, these dynamic leaders. Right. And so certainly a lot of their efforts are bolstered by the election of DA Krasner. That's correct. And so, in a lot of ways, Philadelphia is now like a uh, beacon. Uh. <laughs> it's interesting you say that. I would say that the election of Larry Krasner is a very, very exciting um, and wonderful opportunity for Philadelphia. Unfortunately, Philadelphia is not so much a beacon when it comes to its level of incarceration. So, as, as, a, as a whole, the United States has a severe mass incarceration crisis. We incarcerate 25% of the world's population, and we have 5% of the, I'm sorry, we have 5% of the world's population, and we incarcerate 25% of the world's prisoners. Pennsylvania is even worse than the United States as a whole. Pennsylvania incarcerates more people than the United States. And within Pennsylvania, Philadelphia is even worse. So places like Germany, France, they incarcerate about 300 people per 100,000. The United States as a whole, 650 people approximately per 100,000. Philadelphia, 850 people per 100,000. So we are way out of step. Philadelphia is way out of step with the rest of the state and with the rest of the country. So I think that that is in large part to the legacy of tough on crime DAs that we have had for the past three decades. And I think that Larry Krasner will hopefully start to turn that around. I also want to give credit to some of the work that has been done by the MacArthur Foundation in terms of trying to reduce the number of people who are currently incarcerated in Philadelphia County jails. But I think that there still is a lot of work that needs to be done in Philadelphia. We have initiated a court watching program. We're sending volunteers in to watch bail hearings. And we've just started it, so we've only, we've only had about a, a month in. But we are seeing that, unfortunately, while there has been some progress, not as much as we would have expected or liked um, to have seen. And I think that it's very hard to move the status quo. And we've been operating as a city in much the same criminal justice patterns for decades. And so to really turn that around is going to take a lot of work. Right. So we've talked a lot about Philadelphia, but your work extends beyond Philadelphia. What could you say are, are some problems that are pervasive across the state? And how are we at the ACLU 
position to, to tackle those problems? So we spend, I have spent a lot of time in Harrisburg, both assisting our legislative director with navigating and opposing a lot of the criminal justice legislation that comes through. Part of what we see as being a large problem statewide is the ever-increasing number of bills that expand the prison state, that expand the amount of time that someone is eligible, that expand the crimes code, so that one of, in 1970, for example, if you were charged with, um, let's say in 1970, if you were arrested and charged with rape, you were charged with one crime, crime of rape. And now, if you are arrested and charged with rape, you can be charged with 15 different crimes associated with rape. So that it used to be your maximum exposure was 20 years for one crime, and now your maximum exposure for that same crime could be 60, 70, 80 years. So it's that expansion of the crimes code, and we see it, you know, I just saw it again today. We see it almost every day. Well, not every day, but definitely every week. We see a new bill coming through that seeks to add a new charge or add a new crime or add an additional amount of, you know, incarceration for something. And that that adds up. It's sort of this process of accretion um, that I think we really have to start chipping away at. So that that has also been a large part of our work statewide. Um, the other thing we are doing is really watching what happens in in the Sentencing Commission. The Pennsylvania Sentencing Commission is responsible for creating the guidelines that judges use to sentence everyone. And so we've been attending those hearings and lobbying um, that commission. This is also, we are particularly concerned about racial disparities. There has been a real push to use what are called risk assessment instruments in all aspects of the criminal justice system. And we are currently looking pretty closely at those instruments because we fear that they may exacerbate racial disparities. They purport to take risk factors and then calculate someone's risk of recidivism. But the way that all of these tools define recidivism is according to arrest. And we know that one's likelihood of being arrested is primarily dependent on the neighborhood in, in which one lives and the, the level of policing in one's neighborhood and is not, in fact, dependent on one's dangerousness or, or risk of being, um, being a threat to public safety. So we're sort of monitoring all of that. We're also working in Allegheny and Montgomery County as well, sort of strategically um, looking at, at what's happening in these, these other two counties. And we just hired an organizer for Allegheny County. So we're really excited to be moving out there and doing a lot more work on the ground in Allegheny County. Going back to what you said about these new laws that are being introduced in Harrisburg. Why, and maybe this just seems this way because we're close to this work in, in the field that we do, but it, it sort of seems like there's like a wave of criminal justice reform sort of coming across the country at this point almost. There's a lot of organizations that are now focused on this work, um, you know, in addition to the Smart Justice Campaign, but it's like, why is it that Pennsylvania is a specific outlier in this. Why are we sort of reversing the trend? It, it, it sort of seems like when other places are becoming more reasonable, we're still focusing on these laws that are tough on tough on tough sentencing. You know, I think you're. I, I think that is an accurate assessment. Pennsylvania has the highest incarceration rate in the Northeast. We are far ahead. We also have one of the highest rates of racial disparities in our criminal justice system. Across the states, if you are a black man, you are six times more likely to be arrested. 
I mean, excuse me, six times more likely to be incarcerated. And in Pennsylvania, that number is nine times more likely to be incarcerated. So I do think Pennsylvania is an outlier in a lot of cases. Interesting that what we've seen in some of those deep southern states, there has been more of a movement to reform the criminal justice system. A lot of it has been driven by a real concern around um, financial, the financial costs of this criminal justice explosion and incarceration. The budget that we spend on this system um, is astronomical. And that's not even, if you just look at the state budget, and that's not including the horrific toll that this takes on family members and communities. And you know, you incarcerate someone for 10 years, you take someone out of the workforce, and then you make it incredibly difficult for them to get back into that workforce. You know, so it, it has so many implications all across, um, all across the state and families. And, and it it's also just creates people who are traumatized in all of these different ways. It, it's just a very, very complicated and, and problematic system in, in Pennsylvania. We hope that, that there will be change, but a lot of politicians have gotten support by being tough on crime. That has been politically expedient for many years for politicians to portray themselves as tough on crime. But I, I am hopeful in the way the language is shifting. 10 years ago, I was a public defender for many, many years, and five, six, seven years ago, no one was talking about mass incarceration. PDs were usually just the only ones screaming in the courtroom and nobody else cared. And it's exciting to see a recognition of this human rights crisis and calling it for what it is. And to see that come, coming to the forefront of, of people's minds is really exciting. And I hope that, that Pennsylvania can move forward in a way that they have not been. I think that one of the things we've seen is the District Attorneys Association in Pennsylvania is a very powerful lobbying group and they don't always accurately portray the wishes of Pennsylvanians, but yet they hold a lot of sway. Um, and I think that that can really contribute to some bad bad legislation. I just saw an example, um, the, the Justice Reinvestment Initiative, which this very um, complex, you know, analysis of, of Pennsylvania's budget as it relates to criminal justice and propose some very moderate reforms that would help Pennsylvania reduce the amount of what they spend and introduce legislation calling for, you know, just really sort of common sense reforms, streamlined diversionary programs. And one of the, um, one of the reforms was to call for release at someone's minimum if their minimum was two years or less and they had no disciplinary infractions, which seems very common sense. If you have are serving two to four years and you've had no disciplinary infractions and you're not violent, you should be released at your minimum. But that very small reform was given pushback by the District Attorney's Association, even though the District Attorney's Association was involved in writing the bill. So it's that sort of knee-jerk response to anything that allows any common sense reform, anything that allows or reduces the size of our 
prison industrial complex, the DA's association will push back against. So I think we really need to see a broader awareness across the state of what's happening in the legislature and and how these reforms are a not being implemented. And then when anything tries to be implemented, there's some some serious pushback. So what are some issues that the ACLU is already working on that we can hopefully sort of bolster our, our supporters and our membership to get behind like cash bail, um, you know, bail reform is the thing that's getting a lot of attention right now. You, you mentioned it several times. What, what issues can people really get behind? Well, you are absolutely right. Cash bail is a serious problem across the state. And I would urge all of our supporters to push for ending the practice of cash bail in Pennsylvania. Cash bail is problematic for a number of reasons. It keeps poor people incarcerated, poor people who have not been found guilty of anything, keeps them incarcerated until their trial date. We know that this has a host of really terrible implications for those people who are incarcerated pretrial. They are separated from family, they are, lose their jobs, they um, are less capable of preparing their own defense, they more often plead guilty just in order to get out of jail, even if they may, did not commit the crime. Um, and so it really has all of these terrible consequences just on poor people. It also is problematic for public safety. When those with means are able to buy their way out simply because they have wealth or because they have family that's wealth, we're letting, we're basically letting wealthy, dangerous people go and we're incarcerating poor people who have no, who do not provide any threat to public safety. So we are really urging, um, urging in Philadelphia, there has been a large movement to end cash bail. The city council just declared a resolution calling for its end. And we are urging other counties to make similar steps to end the practice of cash bail. This is also something that could be done on a statewide level. The Supreme Court did, could decide to change the rules of criminal procedure um, and really stop this practice from being as prevalent as it is. The other thing we are calling for all of our supporters to get behind is to not support any mandatory minimums. Several years, a couple years ago, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania invalidated mandatory minimums and took them off the books. And that made a huge difference in terms of the number of um, people who were forced to plead guilty, the length, the really devastating length of sentences. And we have seen a small, and I say small, it's only been a 6% downturn in our Pennsylvania prison population, which is nothing compared to, I think, even Louisiana saw like way more. New York saw far more. But that small 6% would be a completely eliminated if mandatory minimums were, re were reinstituted. It would, mandatory minimums give a devastating amount of power to district attorneys. It allows them to, to charge and pressure people in ways that they do not have the ability to do otherwise. Um, and it's, again, it's really devastating for people who are, for people all across the board. It would be terrible for our state. It would be wildly expensive, and we would, again, see the number of people incarcerated just balloon. So we are really, again, calling on, calling on all of our supporters to let your legislators know that you oppose mandatory minimums. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me, and uh, good luck. You Continue are quite welcome. Success. It was my pleasure. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you to Nisa and Ben. This is not the first time that we've talked about the campaign for smart justice on this podcast, and it won't be the last. We have staff around the state who are building this campaign, and we're going to talk about it a lot more in the months ahead. You can find the action guide for the campaign for smart justice at the website of People Power, the ACLU's platform for grassroots action. That link is peoplepower.org slash pasmartjustice. The action guide describes the need to hold district attorneys accountable throughout the Commonwealth and what you can do to support that work. That's a wrap on episode three. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our theme music is from bensound.com. And the executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm your host, Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free. Be free.